Hi there, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here. It's so good to see you. And um, if you are a guest, we're especially pleased that you've joined us. Whether you're here in person or online, we'd like to get to know you. And if you would just take a few minutes and fill out a connection card, if you're here in-house, you can just pick one of those up uh, at the welcome desk and they'll out there in the lobby and they'll help you out. Um, but if you're online, you just look around on the page and you're going to see uh, just a little button you can pop and fill that out for us. It's just a first step for us getting to know you and you getting to know us. Um, we have a, a special guest who's going to be sharing the last message with us on this series called Bless This Mess, and his name is Bill Kuhn. Bill comes to us from uh, the Twin Cities. He is vice president of student development as well as campus chaplain at what we know as Crown College. Crown College is in St. Bonifacius, and it's our home school. Um, Bill uh, actually graduated from Crown, and then he went on to get not only his master's, but his doctorate, which is pretty impressive. Uh, he told me so. Uh, no, he did not. He would never do that. But anyway, uh, Bill, before he uh, came to Crown, um, he served 14 years as a lead pastor. Him and his wife, Ginger, have been married for 31 years. They're the proud parents of two daughters and two sons. So why don't we give Bill a warm welcome. Wow, it's so good to be back. So good to be back. Good to see you. I'm starting to see some faces and recognize you're sitting in the same place you were last time I was here, like in November or October, you know? So... I get how that goes. I get how it goes. Hey, um, it's a balmy day out there, isn't it? I mean, kind of nice to get a nice day where we can uh, enjoy a little bit of the outdoors and we can come into a place like this and that we can worship. And in those moments when we gather to worship, we're reminded, right, of God's love and his goodness to us. And I do want to take a moment before we dive into the mess that we're talking about as it relates to our families just to be reminded that this cozy experience that we're having tonight is not being had all over the world. And if you've been watching the news, you know about Russia's invasion into Ukraine. We've got connections in Ukraine. We've got missionaries who felt really called to Ukraine. They were supposed to be in Kiev this month, February, and have had to stall that effort. And, uh, and then we have at Crown, we have students that have come from Ukraine and have studied at Crown and are back there now. And uh, we're, we're being updated almost daily of their circumstances and it's quite uh, tragic as you hear what they're going through. You know, fathers are having to stay behind because of uh, their, their involvement in the military. Families are having to uh, evacuate. And so I just wanna take a moment. I, I mean, it's, we're so blessed, right? To get to experience what we are, but let's take a moment. We're gonna pray about that particular event in the world and then we're gonna pray about our time together in God's word. Father, we uh, are so glad that we can say the name of Jesus boldly, courageously, without shame, and know of your involvement and activity in our world and in our lives and in our families. And Lord, in the freedom that we have, we choose now to use our freedom to pray for those who don't have freedom. We pray for those in Ukraine whose lives are disrupted by war and death. And Lord, in those moments, I'm sure 
They're asking big questions about life and, and purpose and meaning, and I just pray that there might be an answer to that in the word Jesus. And that, God, you might raise up your people to be a light, a light of hope in a dark situation. And we pray, God, for peace, for peace over that part of the world. And not only that, but we pray for peace in our world. Pray for peace in our homes. Would you guide and direct us now as we reflect on your word and its meaning to us We listen now. We listen now to you. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, I have been in this spot now a number of times at the church over the last six months or so, and it occurred to me that in the, in the theme of Bless This Mess and talking about families, I've never really introduced you to my family. So can I do that now? Is that all right? Okay, let's do this. Show Here is the family. There they all are. Off to the, uh, if you look up there on the left side, that was taken in the fall. You can tell because of the picture behind the, which helped me when I pulled that picture. I'm like, oh, when was this day? Oh, yeah, the fall. And, uh, and of course, then the, the photo on the right includes my wife there in the middle and a good-looking bunch, don't you think? That's a good-looking, that's a good-looking group. That's, that's why I'm not in that photo. Um, photos are great, right? I mean, now, let's not mistake this, that sometimes the photos can disguise other stuff going on, right? Because who doesn't smile in a photograph? Everyone smiles in the photograph. But you get outside of that photograph, outside of that still moment, and there's a whole bunch of mess that goes on. And the mess begins the day the child arrives. And you discover how much work it is to have an infant in the home. And that baby begins to eat, and suddenly you're changing diapers over and over and over. And the, the whole eating process, you know, you get it, baby cries, you change the diaper, baby wakes, feed the baby, baby has another diaper, change that diaper, clean up the mess, and that takes an hour, you know? And you do that eight times a day, and after a while, you're just like, does, does it ever, you know, you have this, you say, does it ever get better than this? Does it, is this it? And you say, you know what? It will get better. It will get better when the child can walk and talk. And the endless diapers will be over. But then you discover that a walking, talking child is a lot of work. And all you're doing is you're exchanging the endless diapers for endless chasing. How many times have you seen a kid squirt out of a public place and there comes the mom or dad darting and lunging for the child? You've seen that many times. You've done that many times, right? You think, oh my goodness, the walking and talking child who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong, that's a lot of work. Does it ever get better than this? Well, Maybe when the child is ushered off to school, you know, so this, so this child goes to school and then the child comes home with different habits and words that you don't use in your home. And suddenly the activities begin to pile up and now you're chasing that child off to soccer and you're Ubering that child. By the way, have we ever thought about calculating how much we charge for all those trips to the soccer field and the, the music lessons and the art lessons and the t-ball? And suddenly you have changed that the exchange, that endless chasing 
for endless driving them around now, endless activities. And you think, will, this, will it ever get better than this? Yeah, it'll get better than this when they can drive. And though, so this child gets the driver's license. Now they can usher themselves to all of those activities. That is awesome. And what you've done is you've changed, exchanged endless activities with endless worry. Because the child doesn't come home at 11 o'clock like they said they would. And you call their phone and they don't answer their phone. And they're not where they said they were going to be. And the list goes on. And so you end up asking yourself, does it ever get better than this? And the answer is yes. It's called grandparenting. Here's how I know. We Give it to us. Huh? He's one month and two days old. Our first grandchild was born in January the 24th, and we are so excited. And I can tell you for sure, all you parents out there, it gets better. You just got to wait long enough. But here he is, and now we're watching our daughter. Oh, my goodness, I had forgotten all the work involved with being a parent. It's hard to be a parent these days, isn't it? Let me tell you some of the reasons that I think it's hard to be a parent. There are lots of reasons, but I hope that in sharing these reasons, it maybe brings a little bit of comfort or maybe a little, like, take a rest, mom and dad. This is hard stuff. Let's admit it. For example, one of the things that I think makes parenting hard these days is the idea that there are expert parenters. Right? We live in an expert culture where people tell us how we're supposed to do the parenting. It's supposed to look like this, and you're supposed to do this, and this is how you discipline. Now, in years past, decades past, generations past, we had experts to help us that were called grandparents. Right? Now we have people writing books on how to do all the parenting. And if you're a concern, who, what parent doesn't want to do it right? And so what you do is you read all the books and you endlessly get it all going. And you think, wow, this is a lot of work. And you just add exhaustion to exhaustion. Trying to keep up with the experts. There is not one right way to parent. Now someone's going to stop me after the service and say, you're wrong. There is one right way to parent. And I'm here to tell you, no, there's not. But in an expert culture, people tell you this is the right way to do it. You got to do it this way. And every mom and dad wants to do it that way. That makes it hard. Puts a lot of pressure on moms and dads these days. Number two, delayed adulthood. Have you been following this? We've extended adolescence into the 20s. The Baltimore Sun reported a few years ago that nearly 80% of all kids that go to college come back home and live with mom and dad. 80%. I don't know if you saw this, but the Office for National Statistics reported in late January, a month ago, that for the first time in history, we have more childless women at age 30 than we do women with children at age 30. So here's why that's significant. When we ask people, how old are you when you become an adult? What's the signal 
for when you become an adult? The most common answer is this. You become an adult when you have a child. Remember, it used to be when you're 16 and you drive a car, or 18 when you can vote, or 21 when you can drink. We had these signals that, like, you're becoming an adult. Now, it's when you have a child. The average uh, person has a child over the age of 30 if their first child. So what's happening? We're extending adulthood. What does that mean for families? It means you're parenting a whole lot longer. You're parenting through those early adult years in ways that you haven't in the past. We're becoming empty nesters later. We're dealing with the complex issues of emerging adulthood. We're becoming grandparents later in life, except for me and my wife. Just kidding. Misleading stereotypes. Number three, misleading stereotypes. In mass media, grown men are either buffoons or superheroes. Watch it and see if I'm not right. I'm pretty close. See, we either laugh at the goofy dad who can't hang up the Christmas lights, or we cheer for the Jason Bourne-like dad coming to the rescue of his abducted daughter. It makes for great humor and a compelling story, but it doesn't always make for a great dad. And there are these confusing stereotypes. In women, there is the confusing stereotype that you're either you, a person that every man desires in the fantasy of every person, or you're the uh, overcoming woman who's overcoming all the challenges. And that, what that means is, I don't know if this looks like this for you, but when I watch mass media, whether it's television or movies, I don't see people like me because I'm too average for that theater. And it makes it hard to be a parent because there are misleading stereotypes of what, I, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mom, what it means to be a dad. And then lastly, it makes it hard to be a parent to these days because of what I call the obsessive safetyism. Yes, safety has become an ism. Here's what I mean by that. When I was a kid and I went to the playground, there were black top on the ground and metal bars everywhere. There, there, you can't do that. No one scratches up their knee on a playground anymore. And at some other time in some other arena, we could talk about what Europe is doing to combat that. Very fascinating how they've changed their playgrounds to actually get back to some level of danger and the playground. But what has happened over the last few decades, we almost exclusively use the word danger to talk about physical danger. Now we talk about safety. Sorry, safety is, is uh, physical danger. Now we talk about safety in regards to emotional safety. And what has happened is we've created a whole culture of fragile people who don't know, and what researchers now are telling us is that young adults don't know how to handle disappointment. They don't know how to handle uh, loss or failure or letdown or stress. We've grown a, a, a generation of students and kids that live in a bubble wrap. And it makes it hard to be a parent when you're trying to parent kids and they don't have the idea of a scraped up knee or like life isn't always fair and, and sometimes it's, it's unjust and, and we have to work through that with the kid. We've, we've protected so much 
they don't know how to work through some common things in life. Now, I say all that, and you say to me, you say, great, it's hard, I already knew that. Thank you very much, tell me something to remedy that. Like, if I was sitting in your seat, I'd be asking this question, what do I say to my child, son or daughter, to help maneuver them through the struggles of a life. I want to give them something that's true and transforming. What comes out of my mouth to impact them? And I want to answer that question by looking at a phrase that the Heavenly Father said to Jesus. If there's ever a clue about what parents should say to children and the dynamic of that relationship, if there's ever any place to look, it is certainly with what the Heavenly Father set an example for us as parents in what we should say to our child. It's found in Mark chapter one. If you have your Bibles, tap, turn, flip, however you get there, but Mark chapter one. In Mark chapter one is the story of Jesus' baptism. Let me lay quickly the context. As you know, that we have some stories about Jesus' birth found in Matthew and Luke, and we review those each Christmas. Between his birth stories and the story that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 1, there are 30 years that transpire. In those 30 years, there's only one boyhood story told of Jesus, and that is in Luke chapter 2, Jesus in the temple with the religious leaders. 30 years, only one story told. Now, what happens at age 30, Jesus goes into public ministry, and it is chaos. It's, if you follow the story, right, it's a story of people, crowds around Jesus, reaching out to try to touch Jesus. It's people crying and yelling out to Jesus. It's, it's parties where Jesus is accused of doing the wrong things and hanging around with the wrong people. He's misunderstood from his family. He's lonely at times. He's frustrated while he's trying to give out the message and people aren't believing. Why can't you believe this message? So Jesus goes from virtual obscurity for the first 30 years of his life into this public ministry leading him to the cross. And tucked in between obscurity and public ministry are these words that the Father says to Jesus to get him through those public ministry years. Don't you want to know what the Father would say to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is entering the most difficult season of his life, spiritual battle, oppression, attack, all of that, what can a father say to a child to get them through that? That's what we're looking at. Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And there in Mark chapter one, he records this episode. We pick it up in verse nine. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by, by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. I love you and I am well pleased with you. With you I am well pleased. Here's the one sentence. By the way, 
In those three years that Jesus did ministry, only one other time did the Father speak from heaven. Only one other time. And he said the exact same thing. He repeated what we see here. The words of a father. A blessing that helps a person get through the struggle of life, creates some resilience. Here's what the father says. And I suggest to us that if it took the father one crisp, truth-packed sentence to say all that Jesus needs for his future ministry, we ought to be saying this to our children and grandchildren. Here's what he says. You are my son. You are my son. A little over 60 years ago, Eric Erickson coined the phrase identity crisis. Identity crisis. It's, you know, it's just a simple term. It, just, it means, you know, like, where do I belong? And then a couple years after that, we started talking about adolescence in identity crisis feeling lost in the world or insecure, not sure of their self. And then that same phenomenon occurred again in your mid, you know, 40s and early 50s. We called it a midlife crisis, identity crisis. Who am I? I'm not sure where I belong in the world. And, and now about 20 years ago, we started talking about a quarter life crisis in the 20s when you're trying to decide what career path and who you're going to be and all those things. Now you have a quarter life crisis. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but just in the last couple years, they started, they call it the second crisis. It's really the fourth identity crisis. But the second identity crisis is at 65 at retirement where people retire and they're just not sure what they're going to do next and where they're going to live. And so now you've got basically one whole life that's an identity crisis. And of course, We've got the Amer America's identity crisis. The church has an identity crisis. Basically, what I'm saying is we're, we all have identity crisis, right? We all have this sense of like, where do I belong? Where do I fit? And parents, listen closely. You can step into that question and say, you belong to me. You are my son you are my daughter. You don't need to have an identity crisis because I will give you my identity. You are a child of mine. What a powerful, powerful statement. And people are hungry for that word of affirmation. You are my child. I remember, man, it was been years ago reading the story of how there was a newspaper ad taking out, taken out in a small community. And the newspaper ad said something of this nature. Quote, Pedro, this is your father. I love you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Please meet me tomorrow in the market square at noon. All will be made new. The ad was placed in the paper the next day at noon. 1,500 Pedros showed up in the marketplace. 
just so we're clear, this language of you are my son can be applied to any follower of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Friends, the world is trying to hammer you into an image, into an identity, that you're gonna be an educator or a physicist or a musician or a pastor or nurse or mathematician. Those are all good, but that's not the only labels that are placed on people. Other labels are placed. Like you're the pretty one or the not pretty one or you're the tall one or the short one or the skinny one or the fat one or the smart one or the not so smart one. And they put labels on us. And if we're not careful, we can become those labels. We begin to fulfill those labels that others have placed on us. In contrast to that, parents, let us speak a blessing, a word over our children and say, listen, you're not those things. The primary thing that's true about you is this. You are my child. Years ago, one of our sons was, a, was playing peewee football, and the coaches decided that the best way to kind of get to know the kids, of course, once a helmet's on, you can't tell who the child is, and so they would put duct tape on the back of the helmet and write the last name on that duct tape, and so our son put his helmet on, and there on the back it said, Coon, but of course, when you're sitting up in the stands, you can't really see that, right? You know, but if you're a parent, you don't really need to see the name on the back because you can always identify your child, right? You can see by the way the child walks and their language and body language. You can tell, that's my child, even from a distance, even from a distance. And so I'm sitting there, my, my wife and I are there watching the football game way up on these cold bleachers in the fall, you know, so cold you have to put the blanket down on the bleacher first, and then we're sitting there, and we've got our blanket curled up over us, and we're sitting there, and as we watch the football game, this, the safety of the, uh, uh, the defense, who's our, that's our team, he curled around the end and surprised the quarterback as the quarterback is releasing, and then this kid reaches out, grabs the, the ankles of the quarterback and rolls, and the quarterback goes down, and I knew instantly, and I jumped up out of my seat, and I said, that is my boy. <laughs> it's important, parents, for children to hear you say, without apology, no embarrassment, that is my child. And might I add how significant the personal pronoun my is in that sentence? How different is the statement, that is a boy, from the statement, that is my boy? Make sure, parents, that your children know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are yours that you, you are their parent, and that is my child. Give them the blessing of knowing that no matter what hurt, whatever frazzled moment they have in life, whatever uncertainty they have, they have a secure identity, and they know where they can go for an answer because they can go to mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. 
By the way, I never used grandma and grandpa as much in a sermon as I've done today in all my years of preaching. Suddenly that matters. I got to put that in now, right? Next statement that the father says to Jesus, you are my son, the next statement, whom I love. Wow. There is this song that we sing when we're young. Simply says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We've sung the line so frequently that sometimes we forget the power of the words that we are loved people. And then, of course, we live in a world where there are negative messages to us. And can we just be honest for a moment? Sometimes the negative messages seem more important than the positive messages we receive. In psychology, it's called negative, uh, the negative effect. It's this idea that a negative comment seems to stick and encode in our brains more than positive statements. And years later, years, decades later, we still can hear that negative comment. I'm talking right now, and some of you, you know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got a negative word that was spoken to you in your childhood or even young adulthood, and decades later, like that, you can call it. You go, man, I know exactly what it is, right? The synapses are firing, and it brings it back up, and it's loaded right there, man. Wow, I can imagine that whole scene. Negative filtering taking place, and the negative thoughts dominate the positive thoughts, but here's the positive thought that we are loved children of God. The love of God is unique. It's unlike human love. It's born out of God's selfless affection for his people. It's entirely unprompted. And I suspect that if people who did not know us were to come and visit our lives, they were to watch us scurry around busy all the time, trying to impress other people, a person might actually think that we are living in order to achieve the love of God. But the wonderful message of the scriptures is this. We do not live for the love of God, but from it. We are already loved. That's a powerful message. We live in a world that changes its mind about us often. We are quite fickle about people, others. But God doesn't change his mind about you. Anything about that? He's already decided to love you. I'm reminded here of Romans chapter 8, the very end of Romans chapter 8. Paul is seeking to find the right words to describe how much God loves his people. And he writes these words. No, in all of these things, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present. I'm going to pause here. I want you to hear this next word. Nor the future. 
right? There's nothing you can do to change the love of God. Because even in the future, he's already loving you at that moment. Nor any powers, neither height nor depth. Paul's running out of vocabulary words. He's searching his dictionary for the next word. And he just throws in the towel and says, you know what? Here we go. Nor anything else in all of creation. I think that covers it pretty well. He says, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means this. Oh, no, wait. I'm sorry. He says all that, and then in my Bible there is a footnote. It says, except for these six circumstances. There's no footnote. You realize that God loves us without any asterisks attached to that love. Parents, our children need to know that we love them no matter what. Here's the blessing we can leave our children. I don't love you only when you obey me. I love you even when it's frustrating, even in, in the anger moments, even in the disappointing moment. And it helps me to separate the acts of the child from the child. Son, your actions disappointed me, but I love you. Who you are is not the same as what you do. And I love you, not just when you obey me. Yes, I want your obedience, but I don't need it in order to love you. Wow. That is a powerful statement that can stick into the mind of a child and they can carry it with them always. I want your obedience, but I don't need it in order to love you. I love you always. Lastly, the father says to Jesus at his baptism, with you I am well pleased. I think there are some here that would, could say, you know, um, I understand that I'm a child of God. I get that. Thank you. I, I get that God loves me. After all, God is love. He has to love me, right? He has to love me. That's his nature. It's this last statement that can sometimes trip us up. The thought that the father would say, I am pleased with you. And if you look up the word please, well please, you look it up, it's a compound word. And it, it means to evaluate, to assess, to seem, and then it, the prefix good. It's to, to look and make a good evaluation and say, I delight in you. I am glad with you. Remember Zephaniah chapter 3? Captures it pretty well, it seems to me. Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17, the Lord our God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you, in his love. He will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. We've got a little one month old in our family and it's so great to watch everybody hold him. Little Isaiah and they pick up Isaiah and they begin the motion, right? We've all seen it. You can't just hold a baby and be still. You gotta bob a little bit. And then if you're standing there long enough, 
you start to sing, right? There's a little lullaby in all of us when you hold a baby. Now, this staggers my mind. But we just spent time worshiping God and rejoicing in the God of the universe. And here's what Zephaniah says, that when you and I walk in the, in the room, God picks up an instrument and begins to rejoice. He wants to sing over us with rejoicing. Like it's, he's returning the favor. We're worshiping him and he says, no, hold on a second, where's my guitar? Where's my guitar? Because I want to sing over you with rejoicing. God wants to come close enough to hold us and he starts to bob and suddenly God is singing a love song to us. This is important because it means this. The God of the universe, please hear me. The God of the universe is not simply putting up with you. And I wish I could say as a parent that there weren't moments where I was just putting up with the kids. But the reality is there were moments I still remember playing the game sorry with my son, right? Going around the board, drawing the cards, moving the pawns. And I thought, I have so many things to do I should be doing something else. But I was trying to be faithful. I was there. But it felt like, man, I'm just putting up with him now because it was the right thing to do. Do the right thing. But The father never just puts up with us. Never. He is singing over us. Parent, my challenge to you is to make it very clear that when you're in the room with your child, that child is the most important thing in that room. That means you put the phone down. It means you put down whatever you're reading. If you have to turn off the TV, you turn off. somehow communicate this child's the most important thing in the room right now. That doesn't mean you never turn on, turn on the TV, you never look at your phone. It doesn't mean that. Just make sure child knows when they walk in the room, that's the most important thing in the room. Delight in the children. The father says to Jesus and calls us as parents and grandparents to a similar message. You are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. And when we offer that to our children, we give them a wonderful gift throughout their life of affirmation and identity. So let's wrap this up today by saying a few things. First off, the greatest parenting move that some of us in the room need to make is to reconnect with the Heavenly Father. The greatest gift a parent can give a child is the parent's vital relationship with God. To show a dependency upon God to the children. And there may be some in the room today that need to reconnect with the Heavenly Father. 
Let me tell you my own personal journey of that in closing. I grew up in Ohio, and when I was little, I, I get, one of my most um, vivid memories of my childhood was being outside in our front yard playing ball with my cousins. I had two older male cousins, and uh, they were significantly stronger than me, and they threw a ball, and it hit me, and it hurt, and I was, had an injury, and there was my two cousins and my dad, and they began to laugh at my injury. And I remember crying and running in the room. And here's what I remember. My dad did not come in to check on me. Years later, my parents divorced. And dad was not uh, an absent dad geographically, but he was an absent dad. He lived not far from us, but never came around. When I played three years of varsity soccer in high school, my dad never saw a game. My dad didn't come on parent night, and he lived in the community where I was playing. And I remember getting into my young adult years and starting to realize the impact of that and having some longings that I just, I mean, I'd love to talk to my father about this, but can't talk to my dad. I just didn't have that relationship. And one night while I was in college, I sat on a couch reading textbooks for college, and I had a hunger for that relationship. And I, I began to cry out to God. I was, I was I'll admit, I was kind of angry with God. I was like, God, I needed a dad. You know, like, I needed a father, in those years of uh, you know, adolescence and challenge, and I didn't have a father. And all those years of playing the game of soccer, my dad never came around. And as I'm pleading that case, and I'm in just prayer and crying with, before God, and it, it was as if God said in that moment to me, Bill, I never missed a game. And I had to move into a season of letting God re-father me. And that's been a journey. But I'm here to invite you that if you're in a place, whether parent, grandparent, child, you know, wherever you are, maybe the greatest gift we can give those around us, including our children, is to allow the Heavenly Father to reparent us. To bring us into a new relationship and to give us his wisdom and to be able to sit under the voice of the Heavenly Father who would say to us, you are my child and I love you and I am delighted in you and I never missed a game in your life. Will you close your eyes and pray with me? I don't know, but it may be that in a moment like this, God has been using his word to speak to you about things in your own journey 
whether that's just personally as it relates to your parents or maybe speaking to you as a parent as it relates to your children. I don't know, but I'm trusting that the voice of God has been active. And I just wanna remind you that we are in a safe place. And in these moments that are safe, I just encourage you to do the appropriate business with God. If you need to spend some extra time here, there will be people up front at the close of this prayer who will pray with you. And this would be a good place for you to say, yes, God, reparent me. And this would be a good place for you to say, yes, Lord, help me be a better parent. And for some in the room, you know God is calling you to go home tonight and to make a phone call to a son or a daughter and say, son, daughter, you are my child. I love you and I am so delighted in you. And I just I invite you to make be obedient to that. Be obedient to that. If you've heard that kind of voice for you, be obedient to it today. And now, Father, we pray that in your good grace, you might be patient with us as parents, patient with us as grandparents. Help us to love with your love, to see with your eyes, to care with your heart. Help us to be faithful, to steward our families well, to be diligent in prayer and in your word. May we give our children truly the gift of our vital relationship with you. God, we pray for your peace over families, that families might be a representation of your love to this community. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In the powerful name of Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Go in God's peace, and may you know the love of the Father. Amen.